Among the roughly 160 pages of the SF-86 form are questions about your mental health. Now, that form, which anyone with national security clearance has had to deal, doesn't decide whether you get the clearance. People do. And how they evaluate answers to mental health questions, though, that might be undergoing some revision. We get more now from the assistant director of the Special Security Directorate of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, Mark Fraunfelter. Mr. Fraunfelter, good to have you on. Hey, thank you for having me today, Tom. And I guess my first question is, what is the problem that we're trying to correct here? Because the statistics show very few people of the thousands of applications every year actually do get rejected for mental health reasons. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, there are many areas that investigators cover and adjudicators review to determine individuals' conduct, reliability, judgment, and integrity. And psychological conditions is actually reflected in Guideline I as an adjudicative standard within the um, what we call a SEED, the Security Executive Agent Directive 4. But relevant mental health information, as you reference, is just one piece of the whole person concept, which is employed when rendering a final adjudicative decision, allowing someone access to classified information. But for many agencies, the current SF-86 form is the sole source of information that investigators and adjudicators have regarding mental health conditions. And the whole person concept within the adjudicative process does enable security professionals to make decisions about eligibility for access to classified information. Now, having said that, as a whole person concept is considered, seeking assistance from a mental health provider, whether through an organization's employee assistant program or private practice, does not jeopardize an individual's security clearance. And in fact, is seen as a sign of strength. And this is something you'll hear me reiterate throughout this discussion. And that's what we're trying to correct, the perception and this perceived stigma going into what is actually sought as information being collected. But seeking treatment is not a reason to deny or revoke a clearance. Seeking treatment is a sign of good judgment, and it is viewed in a positive light that an individual recognizes that a problem exists and is willing to take positive steps toward resolving it. And seeking help frequently enables an individual to address a challenging problem and make positive gains in their life. But early intervention is a key component to successful and often lasting resolution to the vast majority of personal problems and mental health concerns. And we actually encourage people to seek counseling and or treatment so that those challenges do not rise to the levels that would adversely affect a person's stability, judgment, or reliability. So are the changes you're considering to the form in some manner, or is it simply a matter of training the adjudicators to make sure that they're in line with that type of thinking? A little bit of both. We're working this effort, which you'll probably hear about more in this discussion, on Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative for clearance reform efforts. Now, under that, we are looking to get a facelift for the SF-86. And based on input from a Question 21 working group comprised of IC and DOD clinical and research psychologists with subject matter expertise in personnel security, we are going to recommend shifting Question 21 away from the relevant risk diagnosis and mental health treatment and focus on an individual's ability to function as well as behaviors and conduct that may rise to the level of a security concern. These recommended changes, I think, will increase the efficacy of the psychological and emotional health screening questions. And our goal is to align Question 21 behaviors with the behaviors of concern listed in Seed 4 Guideline I and enable security professionals to gather more accurate and reliable information from applicants about risk factors that may relate to mental and emotional well-being without asking the applicants to divulge mental health diagnosis and treatment. And with this goes along with a look at the national training standards to make sure adjudicators and investigators are working 
to collect and review the information that we're seeking. And I don't want to make light of this, but I will make an absurd example. Suppose someone had a condition where voices were telling them that they had to divulge secrets to China or something. So that's a mental health condition that is associated with, I don't know, maybe schizophrenia and so on. Would there be a way of discerning that level of danger versus just what most people just have anxiety or even a touch of depression, which can be clinically, as you say, treated with good results? Absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. There are conditions that would prevent someone, based on their reliability and lack of judgment, to have access to classified information. So applicants receiving treatment or counseling for the most common mental health issues, such as depression and anxiety, as well as those seeking treatment or counseling after stressful events, that, that's not an area security practitioners are concerned with. This would include anything from PTSD-related issues and experience trauma in one's life, grief counseling or marital counseling. But regardless of the diagnosis, the most effective treatment for any diagnosable mental condition is often a combination of medication and therapy. And taking medication for a mental health condition when it's in compliance with a doctor's instruction is no more of a concern in regard to one's clearance and career than taking medication as prescribed for a physical condition, such as an antibiotic treating an infection, as an example. So I just want to make it clear that we're not looking to penalize anyone for following a prescribed medication treatment plan. However, with the caveat, with the introduction of medicinal marijuana purposes, that is still prohibited under federal law. But anything else, that is not a concern of a security practitioner. I do want to point out that according to a study from 2022 by Mental Health America, more than half of U.S. adults with some sort of mental condition, and that equates to approximately 27 million individuals do not seek or receive treatment or counseling. And untreated mental illness can cause significant disruptions in individuals' thinking, feeling, mood, or ability to relate to others, and as a result, could impair judgment, reliability, and trustworthiness. So obviously, we encourage people to seek assistance when they need to, but to your point, a mental health condition is only a security clearance concern when, in the opinion of a competent medical authority, it may cause significant defect in the reliability, sound judgment or trustworthiness of the employee. And with respect to certain substances, it would seem like you have to just wait for, say, congressional action on the CBD and the uh, marijuana type of derived medicines that people sometimes take. And then there's even research going on in the use of psychedelics, which are not legal at all anywhere, but VA is testing them with people under DEA supervision and so forth, an interagency effort. But the law would have to catch up to practice in that case. Fair to say? That's fair to say, and I just want to reiterate that federal law dictates policy in this area. We are aware of the changing landscape among states and local levels, and we are looking to monitor that and address accordingly, but federal law is the deciding factor on policy in that area. So unless the law changes, that's going to continue to be the stance throughout the federal government workplace. And in the age of continuous vetting, which the whole clearance process has moved toward or has mostly moved there, therefore you can track someone's financial conditions or marital status that can all give clues to possible vulnerabilities with respect to security. Is it possible to ethically track mental health and changes there, or does HIPAA, say, not apply in the case of security clearance? Yeah, continuous vetting, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a major linchpin in our Trusted Workforce 2.0 effort. 
and you know we are looking to modernize the personnel vetting process for the first time in 60 years, moving away from a traditional periodic reinvestigation model and enrolling individuals in a continuous vetting capability. What this does, this allows us to identify issues in real time and offer workforce assistance much sooner. So we do look to identify issues up front, such as financial issues, maybe substance abuse, addictive behaviors. And what this does, it allows individuals to seek out available resources much sooner. But early intervention is a key component for maintaining the well-being of the workforce. But I do want to emphasize that an employee's mental health is not tracked by security, even though we're going into this continuous vetting capability. Mental health concerns only rise to the attention of security clearance professionals when an individual's mental health condition significantly impairs their judgment reliability and trustworthiness. But what this continuous vetting does it allows us to look to employees to leverage the robust resources that are offered by the federal government, obtain assistance when needed, and remain a very valuable and productive member of the workforce. And getting back to the issue of updating and realigning the questions and grouping them differently, as well as making sure that the people doing the evaluations are up to speed here, is there a timeline on that? Do you have a program for that that this might be completed? Yeah, it's an iterative process. We are obviously working to build out policy framework. The continuous vetting right now is in place, and that's alive and well. The departments and agencies right now, we have approximately 4.25 million people in some sort of continuous vetting capability. So we're getting information in real time. We're looking at the forms right now. The SF-86 will get a facelift, but that has to go through a series of reviews made available for public comment. And we're working very closely with our partners to include the other intelligence community professionals. DOD, our industrial partners are involved, and also we hear from the Hill and Legislative Committee staffers who have ideas on the process as well. So all that taken into account, we are looking to give a facelift to the forum and continue our work in the Trusted Workforce 2.0 effort. But that will obviously continue on into next year and possibly years to come. Mark Fraunfelter is Assistant Director of the Special Security Directorate of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thank you very much, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. 
And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense. 
And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.